0: Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out, starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. In the spring of 1943, Europe lay in the grip of fascism. Nazi Germany and Benito Mussolini's Italy had taken over the continent and were threatening to include England in their conquest. A year removed from the D-Day invasion at Normandy, Allied forces were massing along the coast of North Africa, preparing to make a push across the Mediterranean Sea. They had decided on strategically significant Sicily as their target, and the possible key to liberating mainland Europe. But how? How could the Allies convince the Germans that they were aiming somewhere else? and not give away their hand. Do you enjoy a good spy story? A good fictional tale of espionage and deceit? Then you'll enjoy this episode of The Missing Chapter.
1: You're listening to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories that history
0: textbooks left out. Don't forget to follow us on all major podcast distributors. Well, we'd like to welcome
1: everybody to episode seven of the Missing Chapter Podcast. Uh, We'd like to thank everybody. We've gotten some great feedback once again. Uh, We are officially in, what is it, nine countries, Phil? Nine countries. Nine countries, 37 or 38 states. 38, um, including D.C. Including D.C. Uh, so we really are, are humbled by all the support. We would ask that you you follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay updated. We're going to start giving away some, um, some free coffee, possibly. Have some yeah. giveaways on Instagram as well. So follow us and like us on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, today, our coffee, as I'm sure some of you are, are wondering, is a very dark roast, right? It's an Adirondack dark? Adirondack dark roast. It's got a very robust taste, yeah. great aroma. Uh, from Utica Roasting once again, um, and on the on the bag itself, it says that there's a a very
0: international flair to this coffee, as well as what we're talking about today in yeah. episode seven. I was going to say very very appropriate for the for the topic that we're going to be des- discussing today. It's an international flair as well. Um, we're going to be talking World War II, which I think is the the first episode we've we've delved into this time period. And we're going to introduce you to the name Major William Martin, which, admittedly, after teaching global studies for 20 years and teaching World War II, and and this personally being one of my um, interests, and doing some research, and you know, obviously taking some World War II courses in college, this is the first time I'd heard of the name Major William Martin. And I think most people, after hearing this today, this is one of those stories where you're going to be sharing this. Uh, with some friends, have you ever heard this guy? Did you know about this story it's one of our more interesting ones, I think phil, and that's why we we kind of delved into this one uh together
1: yeah completely and and i I think at this point now, uh seven episodes deep, I think most uh, listeners would would realize that you know you would take a topic, then I would take a topic, and we would flip flop we 've already done one that we've shared right, and this one we kind of stumbled upon together, and it was just it was just too good. Um, you know, to give up. So we're, we're taking this one as a shared
0: topic. Yeah, I would agree. And William Martin really is an unsung hero um, during World War II. He's really noted for helping free mainland Europe um, from fascist control during World War II. He was a British military courier whose death in a plane crash helped set the stage for the Allied invasion of Sicily in 1943 and opened the European theater of war, forced the Germans and the Italians to wage a two-front war, and therefore divide their troops, divide their resources, something they had really tried to avoid throughout. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I want to give you guys some background as to how we get to 1943 and the role that William Martin will play in all of this. The uh, war officially begins on September 1st, 1939, with the German invasion, the German Blitzkrieg of Poland. World War II is officially underway. The Allies which in 1939 consisted of Britain, France, and the Soviet Union, would subsequently declare war on the Axis powers—Germany, Italy, and Japan—in the days that followed. And things snowball fairly quickly. Um, very early on, Germany and the war machine that they've produced face you know success after success, and Europe is under Nazi rule uh, within weeks, months, really. Right. Yep. And the pressure mounts on lone standing England, being an island and separated by the 22 miles of the, of the English Channel. Um, they're the lone standing ally. And the pressure is mounting for them to be able to maintain that status, maintain that autonomy. Remember, the U.S. hadn't entered the war yet. It won't be until the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. A huge morale boost uh, for the Allies, as well as in terms of fresh troops and supplies. Germany invades the Soviet Union, in what's called Operation Barbarossa, beginning in June of 1941. Uh, the siege of Stalingrad by the Germans, which takes place August 23, 1942 to February 2nd, 1943, is really seen as a big turning point in the eastern portion of the war. Soviet forces suffer. Get this, an estimated 1.1 million casualties. And a reported 40,000 civilians. That's incredible. That is incredible. And you think, you know, what was it about this particular city? You know, its position on the Volga River, the fact that it it bore Joseph Stalin's name. Really, the line in the sand gets drawn. And the infamous line that he gives his troops when the Nazis invade, not one step backwards. The Soviets in, you know, a, a couple of months have endured unbelievable amount of numbers and casualties and civilians dead and the reward here though for the allies is really a shift in momentum at least in the eastern part of the of the war so the allies who are also seeing uh, much success in northern africa against the great german general uh, erwin rommel see an opening here and they understand that they have to use the momentum that the russians have given them to possibly make a move at liberating the rest of mainland Europe. Winston Churchill, the the British Prime Minister, is focused primarily on Southern Europe, Italy, Greece, that area, what he refers to as the soft underbelly of the continent. Italy kind of stands out. If you were to take a look at a, a map of Italy, and I think this always kind of surprises me too, Tunisia, which is located in North Africa, is only approximately 100 miles from the tip of the Italian peninsula. And we, we tend to kind of lose, um, you know, in terms of its location, and it's, uh, it's, it's how many miles apart it is, it's really not that that far apart Africa and the European continent. As the Allies move and mobilize and warships in the Mediterranean start to take position, it's becoming obvious that if the Allies understand that this is probably the best um, move for them, the Germans also recognize that as well. And the Allies are in a position: How do we not, you know, tip our hat, tip our hand to the Germans earlier than we need to be? If Sicily, off of southern Italy, is our goal and that's our target, how do we give the Germans the impression that it's in fact Greece? And this will take some of the pressure off of our troops. Still a year removed from the D-Day invasion on the beaches of Normandy. Um, The Allies have to liberate this mainland Europe, like I said, and open up a two-front war. What I didn't understand, I I guess I associated this more with the Cold War that would subsequently follow World War II. How much World War II was a, a a, a period of espionage, deceit, bluffing. You think of warfare in the 1930s and 40s really did come to epitomize a game of chess and how one move would ultimately affect your next move or how you would move one pawn and maybe sacrifice that pawn for a move that you, you planned on making three or four moves down the, down the game. But the allies decided that they would take this idea of deceit and kind of game playing to the next level and use that to their advantage to try and deceive the Germans. Enter a gentleman by the name of Ewan Montagu. Now, Ewan Montagu was part of a group that Britain had established of top secret code breakers. And it went by the name of Bletchley Park. That was the name of their top secret code breaking group. And they really had um, recent success Um, recently, uh, before 1943, they'd intercepted and deciphered one of the Germans codes. It was called the Enigma code and it allowed the British and the allies to essentially read the messages between the German generals on the ground and Hitler back in Berlin, much like you would be reading someone's mail and then you'd put it back in the mail, send it off. And the Hitler was under the impression that all of this was still secret. But Montague had been a lawyer prior to uh, entering into the naval service, and he was described as being very subtle, very clever. But here's the key. He was very unconventional. And I think the story that will tie us back to Major William Martin would certainly substantiate that. He believed that the German military intelligence really thought only in, in straight lines, That's how he described it, that it was very black and white, the moves that they were going to be making and the moves that they anticipated the Allies to make. So they were going to try and deceive them based on this knowledge and based on the fact that they did know so much about German intelligence. So Montague is really the guy. He's got the credentials. He's got the experience. He had done a number of these deceptive missions Uh, In the years prior to Operation Mincemeat, he'd created a network of fictitious double agents to actually feed misinformation to the Nazis. They were completely imaginary spies who had been given jobs, hobbies, family, lovers, bank managers. The Germans thought they had an established spy network in the UK, when in reality, the entire thing was completely fictitious. None of these people... um, existed and were just feeding uh, misinformation to the Germans. He'd also sent a a magician, an actual magician he had dispatched to North Africa to create a fake army out of mirrors, uh, blow up tanks. So the man had just this unbelievable resume of deception that he was using to help the Allies gain leverage um, with the Germans. But the the scope and the size of Operation Mincemeat, was certainly something Montague had not gotten involved with before. This was by far his biggest undertaking. And certainly, too, the stakes were much higher here. Really, the fate of Europe lay in the hands of Montague and the Allies, their ability to give the Germans the impression that the invasion would happen at Greece and certainly not be happening at Italy. So it's really Montague that really puts the allied plan into motion. The allied plan into motion, right. And what that plan is going to look like, they're still working it out. They think they've got the the recipe, you know, to to achieve what their goals are. And, yep, they're ready to. They just need a few pieces to fall into place.
1: Well, it's funny you mentioned those few pieces to fall into place because the, the person we mentioned uh, at the very beginning was actually Major William Martin. Right. And and with Montague being such an integral figure, uh, we got to remember William Martin was really the guy that changed the course. So even though, even though Montague put the allied plan into motion, it's really William Martin who solidified the, the victory, in my opinion. So let, let's, let's divert back to William Martin. Let's just talk about him for a second because these two, these two parties here are, are vital to this, to this success. So William Martin is born on March 23rd in 1907. Uh, his father is John Glindor Martin and his, his, uh, his wife went and uh, William Martin's mother, Antonia Martin, of Cardiff, Wales. So in the few days before his death, he'd been in London on leave. He's staying in the Naval and Military Club in St. James Square. He'd recently bought a diamond engagement ring for his fiancee, uh, Pam. He actually bought a new shirt. He attended a show in the West End. Uh, He was assigned to Combined Operation Headquarters, working under Commodore Lord Louis Mountbatten, but his aircraft crashed. He was carrying secret documents, including a letter from Lieutenant General Sir Archibald Nye to General Sir Harold Alexander, commander of the Anglo-American 18th Army Group, a station in North Africa. The body of Major Martin, we know, was found at 9.30 a.m. on April 30th, 1943 by a a local fisherman um, who, of course, informed the local authorities. But then on May 1st, an autopsy was performed by two Spanish doctors who found that the cause of the death of this Major Martin was listed as, quote, asphyxiation through immersion in the sea, end quote. So Major Martin's briefcase was found, along with its contents of secret papers They're taken into safekeeping by the Spanish Navy. And here's the catch for all you listeners. Major Martin did not actually exist. That's right. I said that correctly. Major Martin did not actually exist. So, Phil, as you pointed out, Montague is the one with all these harebrained schemes. Right. You have this this really just unbelievable, elaborate plan to the point where we actually have so many details about this guy You can almost paint a picture, a vivid picture of who this Major Martin is. And the fact is, it's actually Montague's figment of his imagination. It's all a fictitious story to try to get the Germans diverted.
0: Right. And I think we're going to have some explaining to do. Because if a body was actually found, Phil, a physical body, and you're telling our listeners that Major Martin didn't exist. Who was it? Who did this Spanish... You know, fishermen find. And it's interesting here because we didn't we haven't talked a lot about Spain. And you don't talk a lot about Spain in World War II. But we'll get into why the Spanish found him and not mm-hmm. the Germans. That's a great there. Point. There's an interesting kind of loophole here. But to get back to to your part of the story, Phil, who did they find? Well, the physical body
1: was not actually Major Martin. The British intelligence obtained the body of a man by the name of Glendore Michael. He was a homeless man who died in London in January of 1943. So let's give you a little background of this, of this Glendore Michael. He's originally from South Wales. Uh, pretty rough life, I might add. A history of mental illness in the family. Um, Glendore's father, Thomas Michael, he attempted suicide by stabbing himself in the throat, believe it or not. Uh, he died when when uh, Glinder was about 15. Uh, his mother died when, when Glinder was 31. So here we have uh, Mr. Michael here, homeless, friendless, uh, really depressed, no money. He eventually drifts to London, where he lives in the streets. He's found in an abandoned warehouse, having ingested rat poison, which contains phosphorus. So something that, that we have to understand here, is just to give you a little background, after rat poison is ingested. Phosphide reacts with um, hydrochloric acid in the stomach. It generates phosphine, which is a highly toxic gas. Uh, so his his death is a- not actually very immediate. And it actually points out in some of these documents that rat poison is actually 99% good food. Uh, so someone might not notice that they're eating this rat poison while they're actually eating it. And there's only 1% um, of toxic uh, ailments in there. So Corner Bentley Purchase explains uh, by quoting here: this dose was not sufficient to kill him outright. And its only effect was so to impair the functioning of the liver that he died a little time afterwards. So it leaves very, very few clues to the cause
0: of his death. And it sounds very, you know, a tragic end to a tragic life, though, right? Totally. I mean, yeah. Uh, and
1: but this is actually to, to your point, this is actually a great person, a great fictitious person, right. because there's no next of kin for Montague to use. So there's other historians that look at this kid's life, this this guy's life, I should say, he was 31 when he passed, um, or in his 30s. This may have been suicide. Uh, an alternative theory suggests that he may have been simply desperately trying to like scrounge something together to eat. Uh, the poison he ingested was actually a, was a paste. Uh, some believe that he he tried to take this paste almost like butter uh, to put on bread crusts uh, that some people actually have done in the past to try to attract rats. But either way, the body of Glinder Michael comes to the attention of the corner in London. Now, this corner in London, who was asked by British intelligence to keep an eye out for a body, ready, for a suitable male with
0: no next of kin. I wonder why. Right. And they also had said that they ideally would like a body that at least gave the appearance of possibly having drowned. Exactly. Yes. All right. So, I mean, there are a, a bunch of different elements they're looking for here. And this coroner has to kind of keep an eye out for, is there any body that's coming across this table that fits all of those descriptions?
1: And how do you ask a coroner that without him asking questions back? Right, right.
0: And this, how this is do you, top secret.
1: Top exactly. secret British intelligence coming to you and saying, hey, do you have a body we can use? I mean, that, that's just out, outlandish. But Glendor was the, the, the perfect candidate. For what British intelligence uh, would eventually call Operation Mincemeat, because you know a false identity was created out of the body of Glendor, including mm-hmm. a new name, a new military rank, identity card. Um, I mean, we, we spoke earlier: the letters from a fictitious girlfriend, unpaid bills, shopping receipts. So, so all of these things were fictitious. All though? of these are fictitious. Okay. The story itself had to be so believable that it, if, if it if it was brought onto Hitler's desk, he would have no question that this is true. Right. So. The coroner, after locating Glender Michael's body, um, he identifies that it is in suitable condition for a man who would appear to have floated ashore several days after having died at sea Mm. of either hypothermia, but specifically, like you said, drowning. So before Glender Michael, finding a usable cadaver had had been seriously difficult, obviously, because anyone asking for a cadaver would have, you know, people Mm -hmm. talking. It would be impossible to tell their relatives what the body was wanted for, because Obviously, if you have someone who had just passed away, the the family would want the body. But the dead man's parents had died and there was no known relatives. So it's kind of a perfect scenario, as morbid as that is. The body was released on the condition, right, that the man's real identity would never be revealed. So we go back to Ewan Montague. Uh, You know, he later claims the man died from
0: pneumonia and that the family had been contacted and permission obtained, of course, but none of this was true. Right. And it's interesting that even though this is World War II and under these conditions, the the intelligence agency of Britain still cannot just go out and just obtain someone's right. dead body. I mean, you you just can't do that. It wasn't acceptable in the 1940s like it wouldn't be acceptable today, even though they're trying to devise this plan around it that could essentially save the entire European continent.
1: And even at the beginning of the episode, you you had talked about how there's such a, a semblance of, of um, Cold War-esque deception happening right. here. So even as we're explaining this, I, I have to remind myself that we're not necessarily Cold War Soviet versus United States. Mm-hmm. Like we're still talking, you know, the very prime beginnings of, of World War II. So they, they dress up the body of Glendor Michael, remember, um, in a uniform that would, that would look real. So he's in a Royal, Royal Marine uniform. He, uh, they put a briefcase on him containing the fake documents, and they attach it to his body. So the story I gave you earlier about the receipts, the unpaid bills, the the engagement ring purchase, all fabricated in order to make the enemies fall for the deception. Now, there's a there's another man here that we we have to just take some time with uh, and talk about, because Charles Fraser Smith is a British World War Two inventor and an engineer and author and a one-time missionary. So Frazier Smith is actually a very integral part of of this whole operation. He uh, worked for the Ministry of Supply, and he fabricated equipment, nickname ready for this, Q devices, Mm. all right? And that'll come into uh, play after our break. But these Q devices were some really secretive uh, espionage kind of things. He has a tear gas pen. He ends up building a poison bullet pen, uh, a pen compass. Uh, He saw hidden in a... Um, a saw that that's hidden in a piece of rubber, uh, miniature cameras inside cigarette lighters. I mean, we got to remember, 40s we talking here, right. which is unbelievable. Very advanced. Shaving brushes containing film, hairbrushes brushes uh, with a with a map and a saw, steel shoelaces that doubled as as garrets, um, an asbestos lined pipe for carrying secret uh, excuse me carrying secret documents, and, and uh, the 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 possibilities that this guy comes up with in the 1940s is really is really mm-hmm. endless. But the one thing he ends up doing, and he realizes this, he has to make a container for the body because at some point they're going to have to ship it. So he makes a container for the body. And then one of uh, England's leading race car drivers actually transports the container
0: to a Royal Navy Navy submarine and they drop it off in the Spanish coast. And, you know, this is where this is also interesting, too. We go back to Montague's knowledge and his ability to to gain access to these communications between Hitler and his generals, because they're going to use Spain, who we said is, is neutral in all of this. Right. But even with their neutrality, they're, they're much more, um, cozied up, so to speak to Berlin rather than London. And what Montague doesn't want is for this to appear too obvious and and a random body just to, Oh, conveniently wash up on the shore of Greece. And we know this looks suspicious. Instead, they'll drop the body off, like you said, near the Spanish coast, knowing that the Spanish military will inform Hitler of this rather than Winston Churchill. So they're banking on and they're using some of this prior knowledge of German intelligence. That's a great point. And here's a side note.
1: And this this is, I think, is something that's that's quite incredible, which would add to the validity of all these documents in the body, is that prior to this happening, there's only it was only a few days prior to this. Uh, there was actually a passenger ship called the Dasher. The Dasher actually is, was carrying, I, I think, about 300 people on board, and the Dasher ends up uh, being submerged and going down. Mm. Um, I think there was around 200. 200 bodies were, were never recovered. And some, we know that they were they were military. So, this is not outlandish to find, like you said a, a body that why is there just a body floating in the water? This would actually make sense because you could actually foresee this this happening that that bodies would be floating to the surface eventually because of that dasher. So do we know for sure that that's what they thought? No. Um, but they do we do know that 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 adds to the probability of this document being being valid and everything that that's uh, happening, the event in itself being valid. So this Fraser Smith designs this special container, as I was mentioning because he had to preserve the body during the time in the water. So what he he ends up doing is he packs it with dry ice. He puts the body into a torpedo and actually labels it in a way where the soldiers themselves didn't even know what was inside the torpedo itself. So Major William Martin's death, remember his alias, uh, Glendor Michael's alias, William Martin, was actually announced in a London newspaper. April 30th, 1943, as we mentioned, the body was dragged from the sea by a local fisherman before being handed over to Spanish authorities. Now, something I I just have to note right now, I just can't wait to to say this later on. I think that the irony of this is unbelievable, or coincidence, you could say. Hitler is going to commit suicide on that very day, April 30th, two years later. Mm. And fascism is dead. And we know Mussolini died two days prior to Hitler. So here we are two years to the day uh, from Major William Martin's death, quote, death, and
0: Hitler committed suicide, which I think is pretty incredible. That is incredible. And we've seen that throughout the episodes we've done, how things happen. Certain days that mark one remarkable uh, remarkable event somehow end up marking a second remarkable event. And it's just by chance. Yeah. But here's another example. It's a it, perfect example of that. Yeah. So if you're the Spanish, you recover the body. Uh,
1: the British authorities begin the frantic attempts to recover the case and then counting on the fact that their efforts would eventually convince the Nazis of the documents validity. Mm-hmm. So this is pretty interesting. And this is where we'll end for the before the break. The British code breakers eventually send the telegram. Here it is. Mincemeat swallowed rod, line and sinker to Winston Churchill in mid May of 1943.
0: W. Edwards Deming once wrote, The world is drowning in information, but slow in acquisition of knowledge. Help spread information by following us on Instagram and
1: liking us on Facebook today. Thank you for listening to The Missing Chapter Podcast. With us, Phil Schaff and Phil Horrender. Well, Phil, now that we're back from break, I think it's it's fitting that we, we talk about the after effects of all this. Uh, the effects on World War II, um, and the fact that you, you're keeping this guy's name and his true identity a secret for, for so long. And I'm sure if I'm listening to this for the first time, I had a lot of questions and I had uh, seeking out some answers here. I, I have to ask the question as I first read this and heard about this story. Well, when did we actually discover this? And I think it's fascinating mm-hmm. that we kept this a secret um, until his true identity was revealed uh, right around 1997. There was a postscript that was added to the grave Glender Michael served as Major William Martin. Uh, it is sweet and fitting to die for one's country, and I think that's pretty incredible here because um, there was a new inscription added after the British government revealed Michael's true identity. There was uh, there's some documents that said um, they even read the the thirty fifth Psalm over his his grave when they added this, and it says Glender Michael served as Major William Martin uh, as a result of the false intelligence carried by William Martin. Mm-hmm. The Nazis were caught unaware when 160,000 Allied troops invaded Sicily on July 10th, 1943. And I just think it's incredible because you have German Lieutenant uh, Colonel Alexis Baron von Rowan examine the contents and writing in a memo once they they get this, quote, the circumstances of the discovery together with the form and contents of the dispatches are absolutely convincing proof of the re- reliability of the letters. And of course, we know within a few days they were on Hitler's desk, and it's just a—it's such an incredible ending to really the most elaborate fictitious story World War II quite possibly has ever seen. And I think the the poetic part of this is the fact that we have a homeless man um, living just an incredibly rough life. I mean, his father committing suicide, his his mother tragically passing when he was he was quite young, and um, you know he's at the point where he's he's a wanderer. He's he's even possibly committing suicide. The very least we know he was eating scraps off the ground, which co- which could have possibly had the poison. I mean, you can almost imagine him being down with the rats, scrapping up as many uh, pieces of bread that, I mean, that you could scrounge up. So you have all of this horrible existence, but post-mortem now he's actually dying with honors, which yeah. I, I think is an incredible
0: end to this story. Right, and the impact of Operation Mincemeat And what it set out to do could not have gone any better for the Allies, because after taking the bait, Phil, the Germans rapidly doubled down the number of troops being sent to Sardinia in Italy. While Hitler sent an additional panzer division from France now to Greece, right? expecting the invasion to be there. And as 160,000 Allied troops stormed Sicily on July 10th, it became very clear from the less than sufficient German resistance that the British dupe was in fact effective, right? The successful six week campaign brought Benito Mussolini to his knees. It forced Hitler to divert nearly a fifth of the entire German army fighting on the Eastern front and Soviet Union to help prop up Italy, which we said earlier on, they, they could really ill afford to do because of the loss at Stalingrad. This movement of German troops would also have a lasting impact. The number of soldiers positioned in France, Less than a year later, when Boots landed on the beaches of Normandy, countless Allied lives were saved due to this one cadaver, I think it's safe to say. In addition to saving thousands of Allied soldiers' lives, Operation Mincemeat helped further Italian leader Benito Mussolini's downfall and effectively turned the tide of the war towards an Allied invasion and victory in Europe. So what happened to you and Montague?
1: Ask the question. That's a All great right. question. you and Montague. Listeners are are, are thinking right. right,
0: and he really was you know one of the big creators behind mm-hmm. this this plan. He left the Navy after the war. He wrote the novel, a novel called "The Man Who Never Was." He would eventually become a magistrate and a judge before passing away in 1985. In 1956, Hollywood had released a highly fictionalized movie based loosely around Montague's book. And it's interesting. In one scene, a senior royal air officer points out to Montague, all right, played by actor Clifton Webb, the risk of accidentally betraying Sicily uh, as the real target. The senior RAF officer in the film was portrayed and played by Montague himself.
1: So speaking of Hollywood, because I think we have one final twist for the listeners. As if we don't have as many twists in this episode enough, here goes one more. And this is a good one. This is a good one. You spoke of Hollywood. If it sounds more, if this whole story sounds more than a little bit like something out of a spy thriller, well, guess what, everybody? It was. The idea for Operation Mincemeat came in part, of course, working in conjunction with Montague, from a one Ian Fleming, the creator of James Bond. So before he devoted his life to Agent 007, he worked as an assistant to the head of Brit- British Naval Intelligence. And Fleming, admittedly here, uh, says he lifted the idea of a dead body carrying false papers from a detective novel he once read. So we got to go back to that whole idea. I wanted to to break my silence, and, and I was itching to tell everybody when I mentioned the Q devices. Yeah. But if you've never seen the James Bond films, we all know Q. Uh, well, guess what? Those Q devices. Have a connection. So, as we we end the episode, I, I think with all these twists and turns, and I mean, World War II is filled with so many things, and I think our 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 next episode is gonna feature our uh, the voice of our introduction. I think he's gonna do a great job being our second guest in the show.
0: right. I think, you know, I hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Um, like Phil said, and, and I think next week's episode will build off of our World War II theme and, and will be just as exciting for you. I want to remind you guys uh, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook. You're more than welcome to email us here in the studios at the Missing Chapter Podcast at gmail.com. We're underway conducting our first listener appreciation giveaway, which is a free bag of Utica Roasting Company coffee. We love it. We know you will. Uh, please go to social media for more details on how you can win. But one lucky listener uh, will be receiving a free bag of coffee from us, Phil and Phil, uh, here in the studio at the Missing Chapter podcast. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you again next week. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaaf and I'm Phil Horander. Another chapter has been added to the History Textbooks.